Amen. Thank you. Well, take your Bibles now, if you would, and turn to John chapter 5 as we continue on uh, this uh, setting that uh, we've been working through for a while now, if you remember, uh, where Jesus has been in a circumstance where he has healed a man who has been uh, without strength, an invalid, it appears, for for 38 years. Uh, he's this man for all these these years, hoping, hoping to be to be cured, to be helped, to be brought back to strength somehow. He, he waited by the pool of Bethesda there for all, you know, many times had gone there, I think, from the what the, the text tells us, in the hopes that as the, the story went, that the, the, the water would move. Uh, there was, there was said to, they said that an angel would move the water, and the first one into the water was the one who would get the healing. Well, here's this man, time and time again, never able to get into the water, not having anybody to help him get into the water, hoping in, in this story, maybe a legend, maybe... Uh, possibly even some sort of a pagan uh, rite. We're not sure that it had kind of been been uh, brought into the Jewish belief system somehow. But really a man without hope. And Jesus had made this man whole again, made him so he could walk, made, gave him a whole new life, uh, recreated muscles and and muscle memory and ability to walk instantly as the creator God. Sends him off with his bed, says, pick up your your bed and walk. Which leads him then, of course, into quite a conflict. Because for one thing, it was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, of course, was a day of rest. Well, God was fairly general in that, the idea being to to set aside your daily work and and trust God to give you a day to rest, and he would provide in the fact that you didn't keep on working seven days a week continuously. Of course, the Jewish leaders had added lots of rules and regulations and and what-ifs and and is this circumstance work and is that circumstance work and as they saw this man walking through crowded Jerusalem during a feast, on the Sabbath day, their first thought wasn't, oh, that's, that's the man we've seen at the pool. No, it was, you're breaking the Sabbath. How can you do that? Which he doesn't know who healed him. Jesus just kind of melted away into the crowd. And Jesus comes and encourages him. Stop sinning. There's worse things than being 38 years an invalid. Follow God. Trust him. Trust me to forgive your sins. Okay. Now he's, he's led into, the man goes back to the religious leaders and tells them, oh, it was Jesus. He's the one that healed me. And we're told then as we get down into John chapter 5 a ways, the conflict that's going on because Jesus answer for all this, they begin to persecute him, it says in verse 16, because he's doing things, these things on the Sabbath day. And we get the impression there that it's a repeated. This isn't the only thing Jesus has done on the Sabbath day. Uh, he's healed others. He's done good. He's, he's walked through the fields and, you know, eaten, the, eaten the, the grain by rubbing it together in his hands with his disciples. 
things that just didn't fit their idea of what it meant to, to keep the Sabbath, which they're really more interested in the rules and controlling people, it seemed, than really honoring God. But he kept doing things, particularly good for others. And they, they began to persecute him for that. But Jesus' statement then in verse 17 is where things really got heated. Where he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And as we saw last week, that's exactly what he was doing, was saying that he was equal with God. If you look at verses 19 through 24 that we looked at last week, we saw that that in fact, he was saying that he could do whatever he saw the Father doing. Who could do that but God? He said that the Father was showing him greater works than they'd already seen so that people would marvel at him, at Jesus. The Father wanted people to be amazed and overwhelmed with Jesus he also said, as the Father gives life, the Son gives life to who He wishes. Who can give life but God? And we look back at the Old Testament scriptures that emphasize only God gives life. But not only that, Jesus said, all judgment had been given into His hands. Who, who is the judge of all the earth? Well, only God is the judge of all the earth. But God gives the Son that particular role turns over all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse, verse uh, 22 and 23, so that they will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. What? That God would, would want someone honored just the Father? Would want someone honored just like Him? Yes, because Jesus is in fact God. The God who said, my glory I will not give to another says, I want that same kind of glory to go to the Son because we are one. One God, three persons, but we are one. And they think through this whole circumstance, and Jesus isn't done. He was just kind of getting warmed up a little bit. We've got more this morning. We'll have more to come getting through the rest of this chapter. But you think about the irony of Jesus' love. I mean, We've seen very clearly throughout this book that Jesus is God. God the Son in eternity past, he enjoyed the glory that he deserved as God. And yet because of his great love for humanity, his great love for sinners, he was willing to, to condescend to come down and become one of us, to come down and, and lay aside his privileges, his, his prerogatives as God, live among sinners, live a perfect life, do good, and what does he get in return? Persecution. A desire to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. A desire to kill him because he claimed to be equal with God. And we often think of this, this tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders probably the way we would think about it. I don't know about you, I get a little uptight when there's that kind of a conflict, right? 
oftentimes my attitudes are not what they ought to be when I have that kind of conflict. I really have to, to let the Lord work on me when those things happen. But Jesus, out of love, comes and keeps on pressing in to these people who keep trying to kill him. He presses in with the truth in a a context where he should have been welcomed with open arms, with praise by all. And that's oftentimes what love is like, isn't it? How often do parents, you know, have their, their children not happy and say things they shouldn't because they bring the truth that they don't want to hear? There's an irony to the kind of love that God has because it's often matter of overlooking and pressing in anyway and saying, I still love you. I'm still willing to put myself in your way and accept abuse from you because I love you, even though you continue to persist in your your rebellion against me. I think we really see this in this next section, verses 24. We're going to kind of overlap verse 24 from last week. But how it really goes from who Jesus is, that yes, he is in fact equal with God, to then how that impacts people. And even the people who are trying to kill him. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 24 through 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. If you remember from last week, verse 24, really really lays out the, the nature of eternal life. And Jesus underlines it, you could say, with that saying at the beginning. Truly, truly, pay attention. You need to know what I'm about to say, is why Jesus said that. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And just a little detail there that that you can't see in the English here is that in the Greek, all those verbs, hears, believes, has, comes, they're all present tense verbs which indicate an ongoing condition. And so it's the one who, who keeps on hearing my word and keeps on believing in him who sent me, keeps on having eternal life and keeps on not coming into judgment. He's talking about not just individual acts, but a condition into which you enter into. 
those who believe, and therefore become believing ones, you could say, begin experiencing this new life from God now and on a continual basis. So eternal life is not just something out there after I die. Eternal life is something you enter into when you begin being a believing one. The judgment that on that person that they've, they've had, now you go into a condition not of being under judgment when you believe in the one who sent him and in Jesus, but now you become one without judgment, an ongoing condition of not being under judgment. And stop and think about the importance of that. A lot of people trust Jesus. They say, oh, I've forgiven for my sins. Oh, but, but this, all that I've done wrong is just still weighing on me. Uh, Jesus is saying here, no, that you, you have become one who is not under judgment in an ongoing way. He takes that judgment, that guilt for the sin that you've done, and removes it. And your condition as you move forward is one without judgment on you. And in that is freedom. You need to remember that. Because your flesh, Satan, are going to come back and say, oh, but you did that in the past. You did that. You were guilty. They've said, well, when Jesus saved me, he made me one who doesn't have that judgment on me anymore. I am now free from that. It's a totally new state of being that we enter into. Matter of fact, as, he, as he, he ends that, when he says, but has passed out of death into life. All people start off in death. But you pass out of that condition into the condition of life when you believe in Jesus. In fact, verse 25, we didn't go there last week, can, takes us, and helps to lay that out in more detail. Again, he says, truly, truly. In other words, pay attention. You need to know this. I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So notice he says that an hour is coming, and now is. In other words, this is what I'm, what's happening here. You've been anticipating the coming of the one who can give life. It's coming. He says, but let me tell you, it now is happening. We are there. What, what an amazing response he has now to people who want to kill him. He tells them how they can have life. There's that irony of love, isn't it? They want to take his life away, even though they have no real power to do it, unless God allows it. He turns around and says, I have a way for you to have real life. What you're experiencing is death, but I have a way for you to experience true and real life. They think they have the power to take life. But Jesus says they don't even have life within themselves. So certainly they don't have the power to truly take life in the way that matters. And he's talking to the ones, he says, that are dead. Well, they look pretty alive to all everybody watching them. They're the ones that seem to have the power among the Israeli, Israelite people at that time. But remember Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 2? 
let's just turn back there to see what God told them right off the bat when they were right after they were created. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Here it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Here's the introduction to the whole concept of death, right? And we know from chapter 3 of Genesis that eventually they did listen to the serpent who tempted them, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did they physically fall over dead at that point? No. Did they die at that point? Yes. They experienced a separation from the life at that very moment, and they and all of their descendants then who were born to them experienced death. We were born into death because of sin. We cut off from the one who breathed the breath of life into them. How else could they be anything but dead, even if their heart continued to beat, even if their lungs continued to pump oxygen and air? Spiritually, they were now dead, just like a flower that you pick. And it looks beautiful for a while. But you know death has set in, right? Even if you put it in the water, sooner or later it's, it's going fin- to finish up. It will be finished. It will be withered. And that's what we've all been born into. But he says one day, and it's here now, what's going to happen, verse 25? Those who hear the voice of the Son of God and hear him, hear him, really, In other words, hear it with reception, will live. It says, you're already dead. What's happening now is I can make you alive. I can give you what really matters in the life that God has made for you. In other words, verse 24 is happening, passing out of death into life to those who will believe in the one who sent me, the Father. Therefore, believing in me because he sent me with his message and his truth, right? Then you begin living when you believe in him, when you entrust yourself to him, when you enter into that that state of being a believing one. Then you live according to what truly matters, not just all the things that the world around you tells you you have to do. Well, this is Thanksgiving week, right? So let's pause. Is, Is there any reason to give thanks in that? What an amazing thing it is that you can have eternal life instantly when you begin to believe in Jesus. Having been dead, boom, life, boom. A change of status, of process, of pattern of life. How good God is. We don't have to live without purpose or meaning or joy. He wants wants us to have his spiritual life within us. The kind of life that Jesus gives us has purpose, has meaning, has joy, and so much more. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verses 26 and 27 talk about how he has, again, life within himself and 
the authority to judge. He's, he's coming back around to the same things he said in the previous section, but now he's applying those. So verse 26, he says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus has the same life that God the Father has. If you remember back in John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. I'm sorry, I, should, I started in verse 4 instead of 3. Let's back up to 3. All things came into being through him, Jesus, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so we see there that Jesus, being God, has always had life within himself, not derived from other, uh, some other place. That's what you say, this is what I have. That was the case we learned clear back in chapter 1. And because he had that life, he could create everything that exists, verse 3, and give life anywhere he chose. So why does he say, then in, in verse 20, 26, that the Father gave the Son to have life in himself? Didn't he always have life in himself? What's that all about? Is Jesus less God than the Father? In becoming man, what happened was Jesus voluntarily laid aside his prerogatives of deity to become one of us. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 and 7. Kind of a classic uh, passage on that topic. Here, speaking, speaking of, him, of Jesus says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God's a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. Sorry, my page flipped, flipped closed there. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And that idea that he emptied himself didn't, doesn't mean he stopped being God. But he voluntarily set aside his right to his prerogatives as God. He voluntarily became man like we are so that he could be one of us, that he could represent us, that he could bear our sin. And then, totally dependent on the Father, fully indwelt, as Isaiah tells us, by the Spirit. He lived as a man, as we do. And any of those prerogatives as God had to be granted to him by his Father while he lived on this earth. Boggles my mind. I'm probably not even saying it exactly right. Because understanding the Trinity and how God can exist as man hopefully strains your, your head a little bit. If it doesn't, you need to come back around to it again. Because this is a concept that, that should be very hard to, to, to grasp, and it's good for you to wrestle with it. If you don't think you need to wrestle with it, then you really do need to wrestle with it. Okay? These are, these are 
are God-sized concepts. But here, I think what he's saying is that any exercise of those powers that he laid aside that are beyond just being a human had to be granted to him by his Father. And Jesus makes it clear here that he now has full power to grant life to those who are spiritually dead. But that's not all. Verse 27 continues then and says, And he gave him, the Father gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So we have authority granted. So Jesus' first coming says he was granted to judge, right? So here's another authority he had set aside and the Father says, Here, it is yours as a man given to you. His first coming didn't require him to judge human beings. Remember chapter 3, that he didn't come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we're actually all under condemnation already because of our sin. He came to, to bring that way out from under the condemnation that's already ours. But one day he will come and he will judge the earth based on each individual's response to him offering them the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So Jesus has now the authority to judge, but he also has authority not only over human beings, but over spirit beings. And right now, the the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit has the ministry of convicting the world of what God's righteousness is, right? Well, turn with me to John chapter 16, a little bit ahead of where we're at in the gospel. Verses 7 through 11. He says, but I tell you the truth, it's Jesus speaking again, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. There's the issue of judgment, right? That's really where everything falls, to one side or the, the other of judgment. Do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, or not? Then we're continuing on, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world, before Jesus goes to the cross, look what he says, the world of ruler of this world, another way of speaking of Satan, has been judged. Jesus, having been given right to judge, has declared judgment on Satan. The one who started the rebellion in the first place, the one who wanted to be like God, right? The one who tempted Eve into sinning and therefore drawing the whole human race into sin. Jesus' judgment that he did bring while he was on earth was on Satan. He says, here is one who is condemned for what he has done. Now his rebellion is officially under condemnation by a man who resisted his temptation, right? Jesus passed the test that Adam and Eve failed. Jesus brought condemnation on the tempter. 
on the one who tries to usurp the authority of God on this earth. And the irony of this is that the one who has the right and authority to judge is now being judged by these religious leaders who are already under judgment. And what does he do? He says, but there's a way out from under your judgment. I can give you life. Don't make me be your judge because you reject me later. Jesus is given the authority to judge why, according to that verse? Chapter 5, because he is what? The son of man. Now, because Jesus, the son of God, became man, and he lived sinlessly in that role, he was qualified to become a king who is predicted. Predicted back in the book of Daniel. So let's go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and verses 13 and 14. And here is one of the visions that Daniel had, looking ahead, and, and, and prior to this, he was given visions of, of empires that were to come. But as always in those in those. Uh, predictions, there was a final kingdom, a final rule that it was always pointing toward, and that's what verses 13 and 14 are about. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming here to be that one like a son of man. It was one of his favorite titles for himself, by the way, the son of man. He talks about why the son of man came. And so he says back in John, I've been given all authority because I am the Son of Man. Come in human flesh, lived a sinless life, did perfectly the will of my Father. I am that one. The one who is the predicted coming king of everything. Not just Israel. But notice a set of people of every. Language, a kingdom that never ends, that goes on and on and on. Now, Jesus will not fully exercise that authority he's been given until his second coming. Then he will. But based on this, Jesus can say that he has the authority to execute or to be doing judgment. That's his message for these religious leaders who want to execute judgment on him. But again, Getting ready for Thanksgiving. Anything to be thankful in that? What a judge we have, right? Aren't you so glad to have the one who makes these discernments about us be Jesus? He knows most completely that we are guilty. And we deserve to be judged. We deserve to be punished forever. But he's also the one who is willing to give his own life and take that judgment on himself so that we can go free. There is no one better to 
have in that place. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our judge. Thank you that you provide a way for us to come out from under that judgment. So in our thanks, let's live in our freedom from the power of sin and Satan and continually, continually express our gratitude to him for that. But now Jesus moves to the future, verses 28 and 29. He says, do not marvel at this. Don't be amazed that the, that the Father would do this for the Son. For an hour is coming. Okay, so here it's just an hour is coming, right? It's not now is, and so he's only pointing to the future. He says, now you anticipate this. You be looking forward to this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so it's a coming time. Are you watching for it? Are you anticipating the time when Jesus will speak and everyone in the tombs and the graves will hear his voice? Now understand, he's not, he's not laying out for us all the different resurrections that are going to happen. These things are going to happen at different times throughout, throughout the, the coming history. Okay, well, one coming up next on the, on the schedule is found in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're not going to get into all the details of how they come, but this is the next one on God's timetable. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is those who will hear the voice of God and are in the grave and they have they are in Christ. They are the ones who have believed in him. And it says, we do not, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. A great way to talk about people who have died trusting in Christ, right? Their bodies aren't down permanently, but it's kind of like sleep. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Ah, the voice, right? with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And we need comfort in a sinful world, don't we? But here Jesus says one day his voice will sound, and those who are in him, their bodies will be raised. Their spirits already with him. Their souls already with him. But one day, just like he told back in John chapter 5, believers will hear his voice and be raised in an instant. What an amazing thing to be thankful for there as well. In fact, it's interesting if you, you think about what we're going to see in John chapter 11, uh, around verses 43 to 44. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time right now, but... Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth out of the grave, right? Some have said that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, all the dead would have come out of the grave because Jesus has already declared he has that power, right? 
And so he specifically says, Lazarus, come forth. And they had to unbind his, his body because he'd been prepared. Jesus has that power to bring life to dead people. And it's not only a New Testament concept. If we go back to the book of Daniel again, look at what, what uh, we're, we're told there. Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. Looking ahead to the, to the end times, or the time of the end, as it might be said here. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over your, the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found in the book, will be rescued. And then we get to verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now this resurrection comes after the time of great distresses has never been experienced. Right? We would call that the tribulation period. It's going to be this resurrection when Jesus, as the judge, will raise people from the dead. But notice that there's two different groups. There are those who will be raised to everlasting life. That almost sounds like John's language, doesn't it? Life that never ends. Not a new concept, but one God has told about in the Old Testament as well. But others, he says, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's not a new idea. Martha, remember I just talked about Lazarus being raised from the dead? She knew that Lazarus would be raised. At the resurrection, she told Jesus as much in chapter in, in, in John chapter 11. But the main point of all this is that everyone will be resurrected. Nobody stays in the grave. Everyone will be resurrected to be evaluated. And there are those who, having trusted in Jesus, will be raised to everlasting life, to joy. But then there will be those who will, who will be punished, those who will have embarrassment, those who will have shame, and those who will receive what it is that they deserve because they refuse to take the way out that Jesus came and provided. Those, in a sense, are those who, like the religious leaders of, of Israel, they saw the evidence they saw the proof that Jesus is, in fact, the creator, that he is God. But they said, we don't want you because of what you threatened to take from us that we think is ours. Please stay away. Please go away from us. And the greatest consequence of that judgment of those who are raised not to life is that they'll be separated from God forever. It's what rejecting Jesus really is wishing for in reality. When you say no to Jesus, you say no to God. When you say no to God, you say, I want to be away from you. And one day, if you persist in that, God will say, okay, you can have what it is you've been saying you want. But it's the most horrible thing that you could ever experience. It is eternal death because you've rejected the life giver. The rescuer from that judgment came, but you told him, go away. I don't want what you have to offer. 
If that's the case, one day you will get what you seem to be saying you want. Jesus says, this isn't just my idea. Back to to John chapter 5, verse 30. There he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. In other words, this isn't my idea alone. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father and I are working in complete harmony, in complete unity together. And so Jesus, when he judges, won't be judging based on his human reactions to this world. He won't be judging based on being insulted by the Jewish religious leaders. But he'll be judging based on the strength of dependence on the Father and on the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. He has put himself into the circumstances here in chapter 5 of sinful human beings. But he, will be, but he will judge based on the eternal perspective of the Father and from his own perfect sinlessness. His judgment will be perfect and completely just. So even in the face of murderous intent, Jesus offers life and an escape from judgment. He's saying, I have what the God you say you worship wants for you. I work perfectly in tune with him. Is that a reason to be thankful? Absolutely. It's handed to us. Simply believe and trust yourself to me. Receive it. And eternal life can be yours. Not just life in the future, but right now. So what do we do with that? Well, the Apostle Paul had a, a great application for this truth. The fact that we've passed out of death and into life. And the fact that we should live according to that reality that Jesus has told us. So in closing, turn with me please to Romans chapter 6. Where he applies what to do with this. Romans chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. And, And you notice even if we back up to verse 11. He says, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the reality you need to consider for yourself, that you are alive in Christ Jesus. But he says, therefore, if you're alive in Christ Jesus, if he's granted you life, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God, here's here's a key phrase, as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. If you have entrusted yourself to, if you believed in him, you received his gift of eternal life and forgiveness of your sins, you are now a person who has passed out of death into life, live like someone who is alive. God's still engaging with your will, though. You can take your body, your life, the things you do, and present them to your lusts and desires. You can present them to what the world says is going to give you pleasure. You can present them to the things that others mark down as that's important. But he says, Paul says, stop it. Knock it off. 
act like living people. Instead, present your bodies as those raised from the dead to do the righteous things of God. Live like you really are alive. And that, that, that phrase, to present your body, yourselves, as those alive from the dead, it's a once and for all. It's, this is not a present tense verb. It's a do it and be done with it. It's a lot like marriage. Marriage, you, walk, you go to the front of the church, right? And you say, once and for all, you and I are one. Once and for all, I will be faithful to you. And you say, it's done. Then you live it day by day, right? But before God and before the witnesses, you say, that's who I am. That's how I'm going to live. That's what he's calling us to do. Present yourself once and for all to God as someone who he has made alive. To be used for his purposes to really live, not the fake life of indulging yourself in the things that you think you want. Not the fake life of being subject to fear. Not the fake life of being subject to sexual lust. Not the fake life of being subject to greed. Not the fake life of fill in the blank with what it is that tries to draw you away from what is real life. And say, ah, I presented myself once and for all to the glory of God because he gave me life. Not to get life, but because he gave me life. Live a life of thankfulness that he gave you life. Jesus gave you life. Unless you don't have life, really. You know, the, the judgment comes, notice it's based on patterns of life. Those who have done the good things, those who have done the evil or the worthless things. Not, it's, it's not a matter of you earn your salvation, but who you are related to either being in Christ or not being in Christ determines your patterns. You'll never be sinless in this life, but Jesus is a good Savior. And he will be working on changing your patterns. And it shows who you are. It shows your real status before God. So I would say either if you today don't, if today you know you haven't trusted in Christ, today is the day to, to make that, that clear before him. That you want your sins forgiven, that you want eternal life. But maybe you've been walking a long time but your life really hasn't changed. There's been no difference. I think you have to stop and ask, who is the Savior you're depending on? Maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's something else. But Jesus is a good Savior. He changes you. And if you haven't experienced that, back up. Get down to the foot of the cross and ask him, have I really believed in you? Or am I just been playing a game? Make it clear to me. Let's pray. Father, you are the life giver. You, you have life within yourself. Your son, Jesus, our Savior, has life within himself. Your spirit uh, comes in, dwells in us, and gives us life. Lord, help us to quit acting like dead people as much. Help us to live instead like the live people you have made, all who have put their faith in Jesus to be. And then open up the floodgates of thanksgiving from our lips, from our hearts, 
that we would really know what, what there is to be thankful for on this, this week of Thanksgiving, a day of Thanksgiving. We, we love you. Please open our hearts and minds and help us to walk with each other in a way to encourage these things as well. In Jesus' name I pray.